Good morning. I want to do things a little differently this morning. Surprise. I want to pray over this reading before and, and the teaching before I read. Um, and here we go. So can we bow our heads, please? Yield our hearts to the Lord. Father God, I just thank you so much for this church and the stories that Anthony shared. We do pray for Beth, that she gets well very quickly. Lord, we're about to get more of your very thoughtful book that you gave to each of us to learn wisdom. So, Father, as we read these words today, or as I read them, let them penetrate our hearts. Let us be aware of any adjustments that you want us to make by reading these. And, Lord, I just ask that you keep us all so close and allow us to walk in your ways and be in your will and use this thoughtful and meaningful word to help guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Proverbs 3, 9 through 11. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. And lastly, Proverbs 23, verses 4 through 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Thank you. So if you had to guess what today's theme is, what would it be? Any, any guesses from the reading? What you got? Going once, twice? You guys just going to be quiet? Huh? What? Work and wealth. Yes, exactly. Work and money. We are in this uh, eight-week period going through various Proverbs, looking at some of the major themes. And today we find ourselves looking at uh, work and money. Work and money. Anybody remember the famous Ben Franklin quote of uh, the two things that are certain in life? Well, death and taxes. Those are the two things. And so today, uh, work enters the chat and we will talk about uh, work and money and what the book of Proverbs has in terms of wisdom for life. And I'm processing in my head and doing math and going, I'm going to attempt to do this in about 27 minutes. So here's what we have. The creation of work, the pain of work, uh, wisdom for work, and the redemption of work. So first, creation of work. If you look at scripture, you see work comes into this story very early on. In fact, it is God himself who is the first worker. As he speaks 
and creates. And not only does he just say things and things are created, but it actually says that he takes from the dust of the ground and forms man. And he makes man in his image, which means that humanity is supposed to reflect and display God in the midst of the world. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, chapter number 2, verse 15 through 17, it says this, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work, to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Genesis 1, chapter 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every other living thing that moves on the earth. What's interesting to note in this account is that contrary to our understanding today, work comes before the curse. God doesn't say, hmm, I made this man. Let's make him miserable. I know, that'll be good. I'll give him a job. Huh? Chores. No, work comes from God himself, and it is this gift to humanity for purpose, for procreation, for, for multiplication, and, and theologians have called this the, the creation and cultural mandate, that humanity is blessed and commissioned before the fall. Here we see in Genesis 1 and 2, God created work. Why don't we experience that today? Well, uh, because there's this chapter that's really critical in the book, and it's chapter 3, where the devil enters the story and says, did God really say? They go against what God had commanded, and from there you see the ramifications of the fall touch every single aspect of creation. There's this anti-force that enters into humanity and brings about death and destruction. You see in Genesis chapter 3, there's pain in childbirth. The ground is cursed. There's going to be pain, thorns, thistles, sweat until man returns to the ground. And so we now have the pain of work. There's thorns, there's thistles, there's things that are not as they should be. Humanity, rather than seeking the blessing and flourishing uh, of God's creation and one another, it's marked by greed, hypocrisy, selfish leadership, corruption. Things are not as they should be. You see that in Genesis chapter 3, and you experience that in your life today, in yourself and those around you. Exhibit A, printers. Printers are one of, in my opinion, the primary dwelling places of demons. They do their destruction all throughout the land in human hearts, and then they go back to home in printers. Um, that's just a dumb joke. But things aren't as they should be. But these obstacles can still be avenues for growth with God and one another. How? Well, first, I think that there's a right call to lament the state of things in our world, in our work, and in our own hearts. Rather than just being angry, shaking our fists, complaining, leaving bad Google reviews, 
there's a lament, a right lament. God, this is not how you intended it. This is not how it should be. And then we lean into him for wisdom because they're still calling and they're still commissioning with where he's placed us today. And so what is the wisdom that God gives us for work? Well, the biblical story lets you see the whole picture for what it is. And then it helps us resist simplistic approaches that the mandate wasn't abolished in the fall, but we're still called to create and cultivate, to fill and subdue. And the metaphor that we get in the Proverbs here is to observe the ant. And Kim got to read uh, one of my favorite words in all of Proverbs multiple times, sluggard. It's just great. It's a wonderful word that should be used more often. It says, observe the ant. And so let's do that for a second. There's more than 12,000 different types of ants in all the world. Ants can live 20 times their own body weight. If a second grader was as strong as an ant, they could pick up a car. Ants don't have ears. Ants hear by feeling the rumbles in the ground through their feet. Ants don't have lungs. Uh, Air enters and leaves through tiny holes all over their body, and they use pheromones to navigate. Uh, When ants fight, it's usually to the death. So there's some facts about ants, because the Proverbs say, observe them. And so there's our magnifying glass, and we get to see them. I don't think that Solomon had all of that in mind necessarily, but what you see as a theme all throughout the Proverbs is this. Don't be lazy. Take initiative. But it isn't simple, as simple as if you work hard, you're going to have a great life. Or if you work hard, you're going to be rich. Remember from the beginning, Proverbs gives probabilities, not necessarily promises. So is that the case for some people in this room? You worked hard, you gained wealth, and, and these probabilities worked out in your favor? Yes, amen, absolutely, praise the Lord. But are there others of you who have worked hard and things not necessarily gone your way? Yeah, absolutely. That you're not necessarily to blame that there was a system or a structure of leadership that had kept you down throughout years or illness? Sure. So again, just a quick reminder, when we look at work, the wisdom is, yes, work hard, but the guarantee isn't necessarily there. There are major categories throughout the scripture when it comes to work and wealth. So you have the righteous wealthy, those who work hard, have an honest living, save, invest, and experience the fruit of that, righteous wealth. You also have unrighteous wealthy, those who take advantage of the poor, those who use lies to gain wealth. That's in the Bible too. You have a category of righteous poor. That is those that work hard, honor God, and they don't have a lot of income. Exhibit A, a Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Nowhere to lay his head. You see that throughout Proverbs. You also see there are unrighteous poor. Those that are lazy, not diligent, lie, steal, cheat. And the ramifications of that are seen in their lives. Scripture keeps us from making overly simplistic assumptions about people. But the difference between righteous and unrighteous really boils down to simply two words, and it is our heart. How we pursue work and wealth, how we obtain it, how we use it. And what we do with our money, if and when we get it, reveals just about everything of our hearts. You saw that in Proverbs chapter 3 that Kim read earlier. 
And then how about this? We'll go through a, a smattering of Proverbs. First, 23, 1 through 5 says, 1, 2, 3. I'll go to my Bible. Is it up? There it is. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. That's worth chewing on. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your, eye, when your eyes light up on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. What are the Proverbs trying to teach us there? The, the deceitfulness and deceptiveness of riches simply for riches' sake. That, that to put a knife to your throat, like watch out what you are pursuing is potentially deadly. You are about to be held hostage if your desire is simply to accumulate wealth. Proverbs 10, 1 through 5 says, Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. And then he continues, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So there you get the wisdom that can be found in working hard, in saving, in, in paying attention to those sorts of things. And then we'll continue on. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9 says, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. And then further in verse 16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And so what you see, if you take all of this together and more within scriptures as a whole, money is not to be the goal of any human, but honoring God is. And how we know whether or not we're honoring God is what we do with that which we've been entrusted so in scripture, you see God gives gifts through work primarily of wealth and stuff for, I think, three major reasons in no particular order. Number one, God gives us good gifts to enjoy them. You see that all throughout Ecclesiastes. God doesn't want humanity to be miserable. Why did he give the gift that would become chocolate? because he's good. <laughs> Enjoyment. But also worship. That is honoring God with your wealth. What we do and spend our money on can be utilized as worship. And then the third category is for others. That God bestows and grants and entrusts people with money to be a blessing to others around them. So there's enjoyment, there's worship, and there's others. The human tendency is towards greed. What is the solution towards greed or for greed? Generosity. All through the Proverbs, there's warnings of how the heart is deceptive, how the heart is prone to want accumulation and prone to greed and selfishness and prods us towards wisdom. And thank God that he can and he does fix hearts. 
Because what you see in Proverbs is these stipplings of light, this wisdom that then becomes a spotlight concentrated in Jesus. That he brings redemption to all of human existence, including our work and our money. And from the beginning of the series, we've seen that wisdom is this creative force of God. It leads and equips humans to live well in God's world. And wisdom is needed because there's anti-forces that look to steal, kill, and destroy. They look to dehumanize all across the board. So we've seen in these Proverbs how they reshape, wisdom reshapes our word, the direction, reshapes our family, and here work and how we handle money because everything needs reformation in the human heart. Everything in the human heart needs redirection. And that's what Jesus brings. What does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see this encounter with the rich young ruler and Jesus highlights for him the fact that his heart was set on, on wealth and riches and accumulation and not following after Jesus in a life of service and sacrifice. You see Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. You remember the wee little man? The wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed on by, he looked up in that tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Anybody know the kid's song? That's what it is. And what happens with Zacchaeus, who was, and it appears to be in Scripture, a hated little money-mongering type guy? If he was probably played by anybody, it would be Danny DeVito, right? (laughs) He would make a great Zacchaeus. You ever seen Matilda? He makes a good, grumpy old man that's short in stature. Jesus redirects, reshapes, reforms his heart, and what does he do? He gives back, he dedicates his life towards uh, paying back what he had taken and more towards the poor. And so Jesus reshapes everything. He calls people to follow him. And his promise and his path for work and money comes with that. They, They are no longer idols or everything, but they're tools to train us in love of God and other people. That's what the gift of work and money are meant to be, to train us in this life of loving God and our neighbor. Work was created good by God. It's broken due to sin. It's being redeemed by Jesus. And and if nothing else, you can get that, it reshapes everything in life. So many good gifts he's given us that you see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God intends them for our joy and for worship and connection and relationship with him and one another. And then Genesis 3 is why we experience all the pain we experience. Sin has broken everything. But Jesus is good to not... uh, One of my seminary professors, Al Wolters, he says, God doesn't make junk and doesn't junk what he has made. And so God is in this process of redeeming human hearts and through that redeeming the gifts that he has given us, including work and money, to shape us, to mold us, and to move us towards what matters in the kingdom of God. That in work, there's no hierarchy between sacred and secular. This was, have you guys gotten to that part in your uh, Protestant Reformation have you guys covered the Protestant work ethic yet? No? Are you going to get there? Well, or 
little snippet right here. Martin Luther, he says, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks but that all work are measured before God by faith alone. Indeed, the menial housework of a, I love this word, manservant or maidservant is often more acceptable to God than all of the fastings and other works of a monk or priest because the monk or priest lacks faith. So one of the, the major moments of the Reformation was the breakdown of a division that had been made between sacred and secular. Church work, my type stuff, men and women of the cloth, holy. Everybody else, peasants. <laughs> I guess if you get a laugh, you don't need to put any words behind it. So, but that was contrary to the story of scripture in the heart of God. Paul says this in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then later in 325, in his instruction to servants and slaves, he says, for you, uh, I messed that verse up. I said 325, huh? The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. That's totally true. It's not what was supposed to be up there. It was supposed to be 323. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, there you go, will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Just so you know, anytime there's a mistake on the screen, it's my fault, not Cody, not Bethany. So I apologize for making you look bad, but I take the whole blame. So there's this reformation of how we see work and life, and worship. Again, the framework for scripture gives us help in this. And Jesus leads us towards a better, more holistic, more human way. And so I was thinking this week, what are the ways in which we often wrongly see work and money, and how does Jesus move us towards a more holistic, human, fuller understanding and I wish at times there was a magic wand where Jesus just, boom, done. And that happens in salvation. He does bring about healing. But I think for the most part, much of our life, uh, to use one of my friends and coworkers' uh, favorite words, it's a glacial process. It's glacially slow, this thing of sanctification. But there is movement and transformation over time. And I'd like to suggest four of them. Uh, and almost each and every one has a quote and uh, idea. And then we'll close this down. Here's the first movement. Is that we see work uh, no longer as a necessary evil. Uh, but we get a vision calling. We see it as cultivation and care. How does that happen? We move from seeing work as a necessary evil to embracing the idea of it being cultivation and care. Well, one, we have to see the story that God has made us for work. He's placed us where we are. He's given us responsibility. And our calling there is to bring about beauty, however major or menial the task. Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf in uh, their book, Every Good Endeavor, 
says, our work can be a calling only if he is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. Thinking his work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. See the scripture, see the story, and get a vision for where you are of what it looks like to cultivate and care for what you're responsible for and what God's entrusted you to, whether that's a nine to five or you are one of those folks uh, in that blessed season and stage called retirement. I see some of your gray hairs. God bless you. Um, second, from all-encompassing work being an all-encompassing idol to having it in its proper place and embracing right rhythms. Again, this goes back to the creation account. You see that God worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. Now, I don't think that Sabbath is called to be a, a strict you have to do, but I think there's some wisdom that God displays for us all of having right rhythms of work and rest that seems to be increasingly difficult as we're constantly connected to work through this wonderful, terrible thing called the internet and email and all of that stuff. But we're called to embrace right rhythms of work and rest. How? We resist the idols of the day in, in the rat race through uh, embracing regular rhythms. I had this uh, quote came to mind while I was playing Cohen in practice. It's not going to be on the screen. Uh, and it's from C.S. Lewis. He says this, men tell themselves that it is a hardship to stay late in the office on some bit of important extra work but it is not quite true. And this, this sentence is so wonderful. It is a terrible bore when old fatty Smithson draws you aside and whispers, Charles, I saw at once that you've got to be on this committee. A terrible bore. But how much more terrible if you were left out? It is tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoons, but to have them free because you don't matter, that is much worse. And this is the temptation we live into when work becomes an idol, an all-encompassing thing that we derive our identity primarily from when God gives us something different and better. We move from selfish accumulation to worship and mission. How do we do that? There's really one solution, generosity. And the way that generosity comes is through spending time with Jesus, seeing Jesus and his generosity he's given us, it frees us up from the shackles of selfishness. This is the part where the pastor berates you if you have not given to the church and talks about 10% and how in the Jewish world it was much more than 10%, so why aren't you even able to give 10%? I'm not gonna do that. What I'm going to do is something maybe slightly different and more subtle, and that's just challenge you. If you don't have any avenue for generosity in your life, whether that be union or anywhere in the world, then something is sick in your heart. And that is either you're crippled with debt and can't afford it. If that's the case, get help. Pastorally, we would love to help you with a budget. If you have medical debt, let's talk about it. The church is available to help in certain instances. But more often than not, it's just simply that we spend too much money on junk we don't need. It's the same. We buy things we don't need uh, to impress people we don't like. Or that there's, in this world, we have smart people that use beautiful people to sell things to insecure people. 
this is the world we live in, one of heavy consumption that chokes out generosity. So if you aren't able or have chosen not to practice generosity in your life, you are losing out on something that God is leading you towards. Then finally, we see work and what we do right now from temporary and meaningless to eternal and having significance. And the only way we do that is by seeing the promise of God. Paul, in one of his greatest chapters about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, goes on and on and on about the beauty and the truth and the practicality of the resurrection. And he closes by saying this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in the resurrection. Therefore, since we have this victory, we have this promise, we have this hope, my beloved brother, brethren or brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? That's their day-to-day life. This isn't written to Timothy. This is written to a church. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I'll close with this quote from Keller. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless there is a God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you come to restore all things. And we confess often we lose sight of that because we place them on brokenness in ourselves or in others. And and more often than not, it seems, we experience the pain of thorns and thistles in our lives, in our work. We live into the temptation to accumulate simply for ourselves and we resist your better call. And so I pray today, God, that you would release us to see the beauty and meaning that you bring to work, the gift you give us to enjoy, to worship, and to bless others with. And you, God, would use this church in our efforts to honor you to worship you, to serve you, and to be a blessing to those around us. And so help us now as we respond. In Christ's name we pray, amen.